Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor. And this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana over the past week. And we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. First question we have for tonight's class is a new dietitian is joining your private practice. She uses a wheelchair. Under the ADA, which of the following changes can she request to be made to the office? So before we even jump into the question, we can kind of pause and say, okay, well, this is the American Disability Act. And we know here that you have to provide reasonable accommodations. So reasonable accommodations are going to be things that you can do. It's not going to cause you to tear down the building. It's not going to be excessive because, you know, each office space is different. You know, if you are having a job where you're like a nurse and you need to be transferring patients, right? A reasonable accommodation would be like making sure there's a Hoyer lift, making sure you had help if you wouldn't be able to do that. So let's look at these. And we'll also, of course, talk about why each one would not be correct. So the first one we have, adjust the desk height to 40 inches. So whereabouts, this might seem like a great option and you're like, great, you can lift it up. You wanna think too that the issue with a wheelchair would be you'd want the wheelchair to kind of fit and a lot of times that's the width. 40 inches would be too tall. That's gonna kind of put the desk level above their eyesight. So we wouldn't need to do that. B, install a ramp with a 15% grade. Again, this one sounds great on paper, but this is very steep. So we wouldn't want to do more than 8.5%. Then we have install elevators in the building. Well, that's a lot. Like, so for example, my office is on the third floor. I can't install elevators and where would it go? I can't tear down the building, not reasonable accommodations. And so D is going to be our answer. Widen the aisles to 36 inches. This is going to allow for enough space. I can kind of push things so that there's room. Next one is what is the difference between pasteurization and homogenization? So this is some vocab that we have here that can get tricky. So pasteurization, you want to think this is when you're heating the milk, usually at least to 145, and you're just kind of quickly heating it to kill off any bacteria. So most milk we get in the store will have to be pasteurized. The exception to this rule is if it's a local milk that does not cross state lines, it does not need to be pasteurized. Versus homogenization is making sure that you're having more of an emulsion with the fat mixed in. So like the milk we drink at home, and again, when I'm talking about milk, I'm talking about dairy milk, cow's milk, you don't have to like mix the fat. So because it's homogenized. So if you get fresh milk from a farm, it oftentimes will be homogenized, so you don't have a layer of fat on the top, but not pasteurized. So you always have to ask, because remember, our immunocompromised people should not have unpasteurized milk. Next one we have, a research study finds that more RD visits result in better glucose control in milligrams per deciliter. And this is one I made for one of my students when we were studying research questions. And so the two questions I put on this is, in this example, what is the independent and dependent variable? 
So our independent variable is going to be what I control. So I think I control my independent variable. So this is going to be the number of dietitian visits. The dependent variable, which depends on my independent variable, is going to be my blood sugar control. And then the second question here is one that I put and it got everyone who answered it. So it said, is this a positive or negative correlation? So on paper, this sounds like a, a positive correlation, right? The more dietitian visits I go to, the better glucose control. But the trick with this question is I'm saying in milligrams per deciliter. So if I go to the dietitian more, I have better glucose control. If I'm talking about it in milligrams per deciliter, this is going to be a lower value. So like, let's say I go to the dietitian once, my blood sugar is 200. I go to the dietitian twice, my blood sugar is 180. I go to the dietitian three times, my blood sugar is 150. I go four times, it's 125. I go five times, it's 100. That's a negative slope. And definitely draw that out on a piece of paper too so you can see it. So this one's tricky because you have to think about the unit of the y-axis. This is going down. Better blood sugar control when you're talking about lab value, that's going to be more of a negative slope. So definitely a tricky one. And I got a few of you guys too. So definitely make sure you realize why that makes sense. Next one, we have a question from a student and she said, can you please provide more of an explanation? And remember, you guys can always post questions on the page because sometimes even though in this question looks like it's off pocket prep, I think sometimes you have an explanation and you're still like, but I don't get it. Your explanation needs to be in terms of what you understand because things that make sense to me are going to be things that I can apply and make sense of, right? If you're looking at a topic, you're reading the Google definition, you're reading the explanation on the practice question, you're still like, but I don't know why it's this way. You want to make sure that you're doing something like this student did. Ask the question on the page, ask during your tutoring session, because once it makes sense to your brain and your brain's different than everyone else, it's going to click and that's going to stay with you. So this one we have, Okay, a 49-year-old overweight woman smokes one PPD pack per day um, of cigarettes, has a blood pressure level of 140 over 180, and, and has a complex medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia. So she has hypertension, high blood pressure, right? Hyperlipidemia, which means, I don't know exactly what, but cholesterol, triglycerides are a little bit out of whack. What is the best nutrition advice for this student, not student, patient? So options are complex carbs, low salt, simple carbs, high protein, complex carb, high protein, simple carb, low fat fat. So hopefully right away you can say, well, simple carb would be like sugar. So cross out both that have simple carbs. Then we're saying, okay, we have two options that are complex. Either we have complex carb in low sat fat or complex carb in high protein. So this one, we know the woman's overweight. We're kind of thinking, well, what MNT am I worried about? I'm worried about her hypertension and I'm worried about her hyperlipidemia. 
And from looking at the comments from the student, this one is off Quizlet. And you guys have heard me say before Quizlet. Sometimes Quizlet gets a little bit wonky because it's not necessarily like quality controlled. So love when you guys ask Quizlet questions because we can talk about it. So for this patient, right away, I'm with hypertension. I'm like, oh, low salt diet, but I do not see, right? There's no option that's saying low salt diet for the hypertension. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I know I wouldn't want to give simple. We already said that. So I'm definitely giving complex, but then is it better for this patient to give low saturated fat or high protein? And this one, we're going to go with low saturated fat because that's going to help the hyperlipidemia. My intervention I'm clicking is not necessarily helping her hypertension, but it's going to help her hyperlipidemia. So this is a great one because what we want to be thinking is sometimes the answer you want isn't there. So you have to kind of be thinking about, well, what's the best one available? High protein can definitely be great for if you're overweight, but it's not doing anything for that hyperlipidemia. So really great, really, really great question there. Next one is less of a question, but a reminder for you guys, and I'll try to say it every class, because this summer you are going to have limited spots for testing. So if you already have your authorization to test, especially for my new students who just became RD exam eligible, put a test date on. Look, because even if you're like, oh, I'm not going to test for a few months, still look because the last thing you want to do is kind of be like, oh, I'm going to take the test July 1st around there and then you can't get the date. Especially if you have accommodations, August is already kind of filling up for people with accommodations. So definitely take a look. And again, if you want to do a one-on-one -on -one session to kind of chat about when exam preparedness and when I recommend you take it, that is always an option too. But definitely if you haven't already, take a look because it's definitely filling up fast. Okay, next question we have too is going to be one from me. And here I'm talking about, well, what's the difference between a food intoxication and foodborne illness? Because this comes up a lot and this is a domain four question. And a lot of times we forget that domain four has a lot of important topics in it, even though it's small. So with foodborne illness first intoxication, they're both under the foodborne illness umbrella. But in a foodborne infection is different than a foodborne intoxication. So with an infection, we're talking about something that's caused by a bacteria, virus, a parasite. And this is infecting. It's going to invade and multiply. An intoxication is just naturally going to be present in the food. There's no invasion, no multiplication multiplication. It's just there. With our infections, they tend to develop in hours to days versus the incubation period for intoxication is much shorter. In general, minutes to hours. Intoxications also tend to have more serious consequences, respiratory failure, numbness, motor dysfunction, versus infections tend to be kind of our normal GI side effects and we'll have a fever, right, because they're an infection. For our infections, they're spreading, so it's going to spread from person to person, food from food. For our intoxication, it's non-communable. It's not going to pass. 
for our infections, factors that contribute to it tend to be inadequate. Cooking, contamination, bad hand hygiene. First, with our intoxications, it tends to be time and temperature control or abuse. So you definitely want to think about the differences. And again, remember, those kind of can help you to think about, well, what are some of the key differences so you can kind of more easily understand what those differences are. Next question was, what are the seven steps of HACCP? So HACCP, I like to think that this is kind of what we're doing to try to prevent problems before they occur. So we have seven steps. First is list out all the potential hazards and controlling measures. Like say, well, what could happen? Two is determine critical control points. Okay, well, where can we control them? Three, establish clinical limits for each critical control point. Four, establish a monitoring system for each critical control point. Five, establish a corrective action. Six, establish verification process. And seven, establish documentation and record keeping. Next question we had was from a student and they were saying, I'm stuck at a 23. What is your recommendation for students to kind of get out of like a 23, 24? And this is a great question. I get asked this a lot. And especially if you're scoring between kind of like a 21 up to a 24 and you're like, Dana, I know the information. I know the topics. I can explain them. I know what they are. I can't apply them to questions. One of my best pieces of advice for you is you want to look at your past exam scores, look at trends, look at what were trouble areas, because there's definitely going to be some topics that you got you get stuck on time and time again. And those are great topics to do videos on or join a Wednesday night class if you have a topic coming up that kind of aligns with your trouble areas. But the other thing that has been really, really helpful for um, my students kind of in this position lately is to enroll in the situational practice question class. Because when you're stuck and you're like, I just, you know, it's the application. The situational class is definitely my number one recommendation. It is an eight-part class. You get eight 90-minute videos. Each video, you're going between kind of 20 and 25 questions, but it's walking you through it. It's a recorded group session, so you're kind of still getting to feel like you're in a class, and you're doing the question independently. I put it up for a minute. You get to answer it, but then we go over not only which one's the answer, but the explanation, how to get through it. And because it's a live class too, we also kind of have the data from the students in the class. So I can say, okay, most of the people got stuck here. But it's a really, really, really great tool. And I've been recommending that a lot of students kind of are doing this first before they're meeting with me one-on-one -on -one because it's giving you really a great baseline. And the way they're designed, like I said, is really to make it feel like you're getting that one-on-one -on -one tutoring. And because it's a recorded course option, it is less expensive than if you were going to do eight 30-minute sessions with me. So definitely, if you can kind of relate to that, definitely check that out. Also, be on the lookout, too, for new classes, too, on the situational. Definitely will be some throughout the summer. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, danajfnutrition.com, to find out about 
the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.